0: Good morning. So the reading this morning is taken from uh, Luke chapter seven. Uh, we're reading from verse 18. And if you like following it in the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 787, and it's also going to be it is on the screen. So Luke 7:18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, David. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Shall we pray? And then let's dig into this word. Thank you, Lord, that nothing is, is hidden from you. We can't surprise you or shock you with our questions. and that you come to us, you pursue us. You go to such lengths to draw us close and to connect us to your heart and your truth in Jesus. We welcome that now. We ask for that for for one another that strengthening, that encouragement, and for ourselves as well, you would come by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, um, this epiphany series that we're um, enjoying, well, I'm enjoying, I, someone else is, um, as well, the... Um, the view we've been taking is of moments where we can see the Father's delight is to show Jesus to the world. And so we had that moment where the Magi come and they kneel and they recognize that this, this is the king. This is the one. We've had that moment in the river where John the Baptist um, has recognized Jesus for who he is, and Jesus. Defying expectation, slightly scandalously comes into the water. And then the heavens open and the Father speaks over him. This is my beloved Son. And the Spirit of God descends as a dove and rests upon him. We've seen, and uh, it's a wonderful story, the, the wedding in Cana. And more wine than they knew what to do with. Or more likely they knew exactly what to do with because it was really good wine Um, but that wonderful story which is the first of those signs those miracles that draws the faith of Jesus' disciples it's all done a bit on the sly they just carry on with the party in Cana but the people that knew what it was that Jesus had done says that their faith was awakened as they saw who he was my goodness the Consistent theme in all these is, is these, these moments, these beautiful moments. And I suppose that um, one of the things that I'm keen for us to see, which is why I, ch- I chose today's reading. Um, the others are quite traditionally part of epiphany. But I thought the danger is that we just see that these are just high points of you know uh, these moments that are few and far between, and maybe you and I might have them as well. These epiphany moments—it's in, the, it's even in the word, isn't it? Epiphany—a great moment of revelation and recognition—that they are maybe few and far between, but hallelujah if you can get one, that would be good. And they're good to hear about as well. There's some comfort there. But one of the things that I—I I love about. Our faith, one of the things that persuaded me, I suppose, intellectually and at a heart level of the Christian faith and just became like a fire as I began to discover more as God got hold of me, is that God is relentlessly putting, finding his way into dark places. He's not just waiting on mountaintops to kind of reveal, oh yeah, no, at last you've cracked it, here I am, or you've attained a state of... Oh, where you can finally recognize and understand. It seems to me that our God beautifully, and this is the good news, is the God who comes into darkness, comes into the grime and the mess and makes himself known. Is the God who takes the initiative. A God who can stand, as it were, to come into those dark and awful places and whose presence can reframe, transform, forever change those places of suffering or of darkness or of pain or the world as we actually see it. I love it that the Christian faith doesn't need a vacuum to prove itself. In fact, I think it's sterile and it isn't Christian faith if you just make it into a series of theological statements and seal them off in somewhere somewhere safe. In the academy, the Christian faith is about how God is at work in all the mess and all the untidiness and in all the need of the world. In fact, that's where it proves itself in the transformation of hearts and lives. That's the beauty of our faith. You know, a massive question in the midway point of the last century was how do we talk about God after Auschwitz? Tomorrow is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And very movingly, Andrew Kohn shared at our 9 o'clock service in remembrance of his own family, 16 members of his family were killed in the Holocaust. And focused us wonderfully, not only on the horror of that which bears remembering so we can learn lessons of how to live, truthfully and honorably and compassionately in connection with each other. It so bears remembering, but also, he framed that in his own faith about being those who seek to shape the world by our faith and its claims and to make a heaven on earth. And he was a beautiful shot of hope in what he shared. Have you got Cape and Ray students here? I think they might all be busy out there. (laughs) Cape and Ray is a great story. How do you talk about God after the Second World War? How do you begin to talk about reconciliation? Well, somebody local had the idea of turning the family, you know, estate into a place where young Germans could come and begin to rebuild a life in response to the call of Jesus Christ. That's the torchbearers. That's Cape and Ray. It was a very... Probably for some very difficult thing to have chosen to do in our locality. What an amazing vision. How do you rebuild after the Second World War? Theologians didn't necessarily throw faith out after Auschwitz. They framed questions very deliberately. I suppose looking very soberly at ourselves again. And the claims that the church had made and then in so many ways in some contexts colluded with what we then went on to do in the Second World War. So what I love is seeing how our faith is actually best found, expressed, framed when we are in those conversations asking, how does it work here? What is God doing here? And it doesn't break the sort of brittle doctrines and dogma and philosophy of Christianity that's not that's not what it is I love it that it works it works it works I've got some um, I've got some points hang on so is it okay to have questions yes good answer Absolutely. And um, one of the things I love about this reading, the reason we've chosen it, is because it, it, it brings John, John the Baptist, out for his second outing in our, um, in our epiphany series. First outing, he's there in one of those moments, isn't he, where the heavens open and Jesus is revealed as the Son. And here we have John... Again, but Luke 3, 19 to 20, very briefly notes that Herod, the Tetrarch, having been rebuked by John the Baptist about Herodias, who was his brother's wife, um, and about all the evil things that he'd done, added this to what he'd done. He locked John up in prison. We have somebody here who has been a proclaimer of who Jesus is in advance of Jesus' coming, has recognized Jesus for who he is. So it's beautiful in our John's Gospel series in the evenings. We've just been at the riverbank with John, and he's there saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's this moment, as John describes it, as though he, I didn't know, and then I knew. I saw the Spirit of God descend and remain upon him. It's true. It's him. Oh, this these amazing revelation. We have John, who has inhabited that, has pointed to him, known him. He's the one who's given the account. The one whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. He's the one who will come. He's the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. John is in a place of sufficient darkness or fear. Or isolation. That he's asking a really big question. I don't think it's just an intellectual question. I'm getting mixed reports. Jesus acknowledges those, doesn't he, when he asks in the midpoint of Luke or Matthew, you know, who do people say that I am? You hear a few answers. Oh, some say you're a great prophet. Some say this, some say that. Well, who do you say I am? You know, maybe John's getting the mixed reports and is asking, you know, could you just please confirm for us that you are, in fact, the Messiah? I'm not hearing that as the question. John has been in a place of so much confidence as to who Jesus is. And yes, he may have been aware of the opposition and the questions, some of those kind of waves as Jesus has begun to minister. But he's also hearing reports about the amazing things that Jesus is doing and somehow it's all of this he's getting reports from his disciples and yet he sends his disciples two of them to Jesus to ask are you the messiah we've been expecting is that not a surprising question from the one who's been describing the messiah and pointing at him should we keep looking for someone else have I got it right are you the one you may have asked that question yourself, albeit in a different form. You're in good company. That's the first point this morning that I want to make. You're in good company. And the first thing I want us to look at is what John does with his question and what Jesus does with his question. And I hope you'll feel encouraged. The, the wonderful thing about what John has done is he hasn't, he's in prison, literally. Um, but he's, somehow he's finding a way, he's found the, the courage to send disciples to ask a question of Jesus. I think that's pretty brave, actually. Don't you? He's not going to remain a, a prisoner of his internal thoughts, whatever his circumstances. Sends his disciples to ask, and the question gets repeated. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? So he breaks I don't know, the shame of having a question. Maybe he didn't feel any shame. He was not someone who was prone to the fear of other people. I mean, that's why he's in prison. So perhaps he's robust enough to just think, I am struggling. I'm going to send a question. Good on John. We're all different, aren't we? But he does something with it. And where he sends the question is to Jesus. That's good. You can get a lot of people to answer any of your questions, can't you? It's quite important where you take your questions. I think, he did, I think he made a great choice. Goes to Jesus. That's what he did. Job done. That is what John did with his question. He went to Jesus. That is brilliant. Let's learn from that. I haven't finished the sermon, but that is a take home. Right? Take it to Jesus. Take it into a reading of the Gospels. Take it in prayer with those you trust who are walking with him. There are friends involved here. John has a community of people still connecting with him, able to carry his questions, carry him, go and connect with Jesus and people around Jesus, where Jesus is. Go and, do you know what I mean? But he did something with it. He didn't just sit with it. He found there was a moment that came. That doesn't come quickly necessarily in our experience. It may not. But I wonder what... There was a bit of I wonder about what's behind that question, but let's just... Recognised that John was in a very difficult place. And I wonder if we've asked questions in similarly difficult places in our own experience, whether it's the pain of loss or of disappointment or just the overwhelming that we can experience if you just spend time. I don't know about you. I, I, I do look at the news But I look at it with my eyes and probably my head more than my heart, if I'm honest. I don't let myself get overwhelmed. If I engaged at a certain level with some of what's in the news, I think I'd just be wrecked. I'm just confessing that. You might be better at it than me. I think I had that kind of fatigue perhaps some years ago, and I'm in recovery or not. But I think we can look at the world and feel utterly overwhelmed by situations that we can feel utterly powerless to do anything about and the, the issue for us i think is where any of those experiences and they're real can persuade us that god is somehow absent or distant or indifferent, or impassive. Somehow we get robbed and it's like the first robbery in the Bible. It's sort of that undermining of the intentions of God and the purpose of God and the invitation to walk intimately and to know the very presence of God for ourselves. You see how that happened in the garden when the snake came and lied. We can be vulnerable to those things. And so yet, yeah, what does Jesus do? with John's question. Does he send those disciples away with a flea in their ear and say, I can't believe it, and his family too? Are you kidding me? I thought we'd sorted this out. Well, it's a shame that John's fallen away. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's no shaming, and there's, no, there's none of that, is there? What he does is interesting. At that very time, the scene unfolds, Jesus cures many people. He heals people of their diseases and their illnesses, sets people free from the influence of evil spirits. He restores sight to many who are blind. There's a wonderful echo there of Luke 4, which talks about the spirit of the sovereign Lord being on him to open the eyes of the blind, to set captives free, to preach good news to the poor. He's echoing that mandate from Isaiah 61 that he read over himself in Nazareth and declared today in your hearing these words are fulfilled it was the great launch of his ministry a ministry of bringing the kingdom the government the influence of God into the world to change every situation where that was allowed to exercise its influence so where Jesus is these things break out And then he tells John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, the good news is being preached to the poor. What a brilliant answer. It's not a direct answer, is it? John's question was, are you the one we're waiting for? Did Jesus answer his question? Yes? And? No, I mean he didn't answer it directly, did he? He didn't say yes, but he does answer it. What I love about his answer is that he, he points at a world of blindness, where there's leprosy and ill health and death and poverty. Are you feeling yourself sink as I describe the world? A world full of those things, of captivity, of hopelessness, of darkness. He's describing a world with those ingredients. He literally names the ingredients. He talks about the blind, the lame, those with leprosy, the dead, the poor. But he talks about the world as it is in relation to him. And the impact of his life and presence in the world. He says the dead are being raised to life. The poor are having the good news preached to them. Hope is arising. A new world is being described and created as we gather this momentum. He's not asking John not to consider the world as it is with its pain and its suffering. He's asking John to see the world as it is with Jesus in it and where Jesus goes. The influence that he can have as he connects with lives and touches people around him and he adds god blesses those who do not fall away because of me, because of me stick with me hold fast it's not without cost but trust me he says so he has answered the question you're absolutely right jesus offers a testimony He offers the experience of those in the world meeting Jesus for themselves. He doesn't give a theoretical answer. He could have quoted so many verses as proof of what he was and who he was. He points to the kingdom as substance and as experience in the world. That's the proof of who he is. The world is changed where he is by his presence. And that's his purpose. So job done. That's how Jesus deals with John's question. Except it isn't. It's not the end. Because then even after his disciples go, there's this amazing moment where Jesus, in front of the people who perhaps have heard John's disciples asking John's question, the murmurs may have gone along. Oh, it's a shame, really. He's fallen off the horse. He's uh, yeah, a bit of a loss of faith there, John the Baptist. We really liked him out in the desert. And so and Jesus begins to talk about John the Baptist in the most honoring terms, reminding people of how heaven sees John the Baptist, the great guy who just asked a really big question. Jesus says, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see when, he was, you know, when John was at the height of his ministry? Was he a weak reed, swayed? No, he was strong and steadfast. He was fierce, wasn't he? Were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, he shunned the world and he just called us to God. You know, he he talks about who John was, who John is in heaven's sight. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, you were. And I'll tell you, he was a prophet, the greatest of prophets. He was the greatest man who ever lived. There is none greater than John. What an amazing servant of God. Malachi spoke of him when he said, the one who's preparing the way of the Lord. Honor this man. Isn't it amazing? Talk about some reputational kind of... Uh, <laughs> Jesus is so kind, isn't he? So he not only answers a question, not only receives a question, gives grace for an answer, offers the most substantial kind of answer. He's then going to John's defense, describing who he is. It's just stunning what Jesus does with a good and honest question brought to him. It's really redemptive, isn't it? Do you feel like you could trust Jesus? I feel like I can trust Jesus on this basis with, you know, with, the, with the real stuff of life. What do I do about that? I'm not necessarily thinking I'm going to get a straight answer. Why did so-and-so die? I don't have an answer. There are some questions I don't expect a straight answer to, actually. But what I know I can get from Jesus is that he's going to take seriously The question I'm asking, he's going to offer what is needed. He's going to gently draw me back or dramatically wake me up, pull me around, and uh, give me some very strong coffee to get me to a place where I can see who he is so the rest will follow. He'll fight for that connection. And even fight for me. He's fighting for John here. Isn't it beautiful? He describes who John is. So I just wanted us to see what Jesus does with a cracking Question. Or a scary question. So there we go, it's good. And so, a couple of things that I think we could learn from this as well. Um, Yeah, one of the things that I think we can learn is not only about John and Jesus, that interaction. I think that's really important. Something about John's friends here and what Jesus entrusts to them to take to John. Something about the currency of testimony that's really important. Something about being deliberate in pointing to what God is doing. I sometimes hear, are we doing that sometimes and pretending that everything's rosy? Are we just going to be relentlessly and sickeningly optimistic? My answer would be no. Are we going to pretend we're in a world where God doesn't act? It's a bit harsh. I've never actually said that. But internally, the value, the currency of testimony is that we defy An account of the world as a world in which God is powerless and not acting. And we choose to celebrate and feed our hearts and our minds on the things that he is doing. And we can allow ourselves either to carry those things to other people as John's disciples did. They weren't directly involved in what Jesus did. They got to see it and hear it and then go and say it to their friends. But that was what Jesus wanted them to do. That was a ministry of Jesus to John in his darkness. And something about being able to do that is really important. Valuing testimony so that it can frame even the hardest seasons where we are holding and working and grieving and suffering with questions that don't have neat answers. Now, what I'm not saying is it's a great idea to go and hit people with jolly testimonies when they're grieving. Just be wise. We're not saying that. But there is something about Jesus working to inject hope and to release an account of his work in this world in all its complexity and mess that is really, really important. I like the words of Julian of Norwich. 700 years ago, 800 years ago, Norwich was not a nice place. So believe me when I say I'm sure it's lovely now. I have been there. But the Norwich in which Julian of Norwich prayed and worshiped God and served God was a place where there was plague And every now and again, there'd be a riot where loads of people would get killed on the streets. I mean, it was just horrendous. It was just, yeah, it was awful. What the reality of the world was. You know, thinking about how does Christianity work in a world where there's suffering. She really did have a window onto streets that were dangerous and awful. And yet she could say, all will be well. And not because she was a Christian greetings card authoress on the side, but just because fundamentally, in what she'd seen and suffered and known and inhabited in her faith, that she just came to the conclusion that this didn't destroy faith, that somehow this this is the very world that God so loved and has come to. This is the world in which we have hope because we have a crucified and risen Savior. He has marked the most painful and darkest of routes through this world in loss and suffering and separation. It's not as though God's oblivious to that and trying to jolly us into a better account of the world. It's that God, defiantly and victoriously in the midst of that, declares, the world is forever changed. Follow me. And he doesn't shy away from the cost of doing it. And so she said, Everything will be okay. That's my paraphrase. It's not the original Old English. It will be okay. Isn't that interesting? Bit oversimple, bit offensive, or just fundamentally true in the crucible. And Jesus said. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus suffered an awful lot of opposition. You'd think they'd have noticed he was the Messiah. You know, would we have been any different? <laughs> and so Jesus prayed for you and for me. I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to protect them from the evil one. And the currency of testimony is important because our protection from the evil one is fundamentally not just from falling pianos on high or whatever, it's actually from the subtlety of sowing in lies that separate us from the comfort, the truth, the reality of God present with us, walking with us, and working around us and even through us. Deliver us from evil. We pray. So, testimony is very important. And I like testimony as well as leverage, really. I've heard testimonies from um, churches, parts of the world where choosing to follow Christ drastically reduces life expectancy. And the view of people, it's quoted of course, I'm not personally connected with churches underground in Afghanistan or something, but just that the view that's taken is if someone's life is taken, we're just gonna pray for a hundred more to join the body of Christ because we've just been robbed. You know, the defiance in the face of actual suffering and persecution in the body of Christ is extraordinary. It's not an intellectual problem, it's a reality in which the life of Christ faces down the worst of danger and persecution. (laughs) Talking back to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I like the um, I heard a talk by a woman called Christine Kane, who's a Hillsongs leader. Um, He heads up the charity, um, a charity that is particularly involved in enabling sex workers to get out of trafficked lives and the sex trade. And something, when she described the work that they were doing, and how she receives the news, if somebody, or perhaps a small group of women, have been they've connected and been able to kind of move them out and on into perhaps a, a recovery program in a safe place. But something just came alive in her as she was speaking, and she talked really from the, leveraging her own experience of suffering and, the, and, and trauma in her own life as saying, talking back to the enemy and saying, I, you see, look, look at this, I am going to make you pay, she said, And I've never been more convinced of somebody meaning it in my life. But again, something about the power of testimony that defies the evil one who is a thief and a murderer and a liar. Testimony is so important. The third thing that I wanted us to think about, so there's this thing about John and Jesus. And, and us and our questions and Jesus' response to us. The thing about John's friends and how we can be friends to one another in grace and support each other and just feed each other in appropriate but hope-filled ways. The third thing I just wanted to pick up on is Jesus' interesting comment at the end of his little speech about John the Baptist. Let me read verse 28 again to you. I tell you, Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Wow. Yet, second half of the sentence, even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Is that a mixed message? It's interesting, isn't it? I think the the point that we've got here in Jesus' teachings, I would expand it, is that the world changes in the arrival of Jesus, in the proclamation, the demonstration, and the establishment of the kingdom of God breaking into the world, and that by God's grace, through what Jesus has done and given to us, we can become subjects of that kingdom. Citizens of heaven. There are lots of ways of phrasing it, but they amount to the same thing, a life in Christ, a life from Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. And so Jesus paints this picture where John, his faith and his calling, is absolutely the pinnacle amongst God's people for the revelation of the Messiah himself. He says that's kind of, it pales, When you think about what somebody has access to as they become part of God's kingdom people. And so he's talking about you. And he's talking about me. And I just want to finish the sermon by saying to you that there is something very... It's just a a fragment of it here, but that's really important. That we're not only people who can come to Jesus and get our bearings on our experience of the world and our trust in him. Not only people who can see and hear and report back on the things that Jesus is doing out there, but that we are called to be a kingdom people who actually provide the evidence of Jesus here and now through our lives, our words, our action, our service. That's what we are called to do Jesus vision of the church you know and he said I'll build my church and he gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter and says you have this extraordinary authority to bind and to loose, to stop things and to release things into the world to bring an alignment in the language um, of of how it is in heaven your kingdom come we pray this "Let, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." He gives an authority as he speaks to Peter about the church to be a people who do that, who express the government and the kingdom and the goodness of God in the world. And he says, doesn't he, the gates of hell will not be able to stand against my church. How's that for acknowledging a world where there's some darkness and some serious barriers have been erected to keep things from God and from redemption, to imprison things in darkness. And Jesus says, we're going to take it down. That's the church that he is imagining. That's the church he's promising to build. So the least in God's kingdom is a very powerful thing, as Jesus himself acknowledges here. What we get to bring to the world, like Jesus, pointing to lives. In your kingdom, we sang it, broken lives are made new. Surrendering our lives to partner with God, to provide evidence on a daily basis of who Jesus is, is our wonderful cost you everything and beautiful calling as God's people are you up for it?